Hi, my name is Eric Rosen, and I'm very excited to be here with Billy Libby today on the newest edition of the Founder Series, which is a joint effort from 3i and the Rosen Report. Billy, welcome aboard. How you doing? Eric, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. You know, I get to do a lot of these podcasts with different people, and uh, I love doing it when I'm with a close friend. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun today, and I look forward to uh, hearing the story. So uh, why don't you start with uh, telling us a little bit about your professional journey and background spanning from Penn soccer to Goldman Sachs? Sure. And I'll, I'll try to be brief so we can talk about more interesting things <laughs> um, for the for the audience. But when, you know, grew up in the D.C. area and my parents were always doing, you know, kind of entrepreneurial things. And my dad really always had worked for himself and I had taken advantage of my summers in college to try to do different things. So I went to Penn, played soccer there. Um, and one summer I worked at the White House uh, under the Clinton administration. Uh, another summer I worked in Hong Kong doing investment banking uh, in TMT. And just when I graduated from school, really, I knew that I wanted to do something a bit more fast paced. And I was interested in technology and entrepreneurship. So as I was interviewing out of school, you as you know, you, you would kind of apply to a desk. Mm -hmm. Um, and as a 21 year old, I mean, how do you know of an FX desk versus Levfin versus, you know, Luck. ISG sales? I mean, it's, it's complete randomness. And Goldman was the one firm that said, look, we see a lot more of you than you see of us at this age. If you're the right fit for the firm culturally, we'll figure out where you're going to be the most impactful. And so they directed me to this area of electronic trading in 2003 which was building algorithms and building technology for hedge funds to trade in a more automated way and to build exchanges. My boss went to run the New York Stock Exchange. And um, that was kind of my first entree to technology and, you know, following advice from people who have a lot more experience than you and, and trusting that that will work out. Wow. And that worked out well. That's, that's amazing. What were some of the key decisions you made during that journey when you were at Goldman that you recall that may have helped your career? I think going into areas that there aren't many experts in, you know, it kind of allows you to get your hands dirty. As I've gotten older, I, I view myself as being a natural salesperson. And I remember when I started my boss there, this guy, Mike Barini, who came from SLK, if you remember Spear Leads and Kellogg. Yep. And it was much more old school, you know, throw you in the trenches, sink yep. or swim. He said, look, you seem naturally comfortable with clients, so we're going to put you in operations, you know, and kind of understand how things work and process and clear and bill. And I just think that experience of kind of understanding how things work back to front and, and really attacking each opportunity given to you with the same vigor, like helped me a lot understand how things get built. Most of Wall Street roles are really selling. And so kind of learning how the product side and operational side work, I think was very helpful to me. Yeah. Sales are sales is key on Wall Street. Selling yourself, selling a product, it's, it's important. So can you tell us about what exactly Upper 90 is and then how you came about founding it? Sure. So I look back at electronic trading and quantitative trading. And it's a lot, sim it's very similar to fintech as people understand it today, right? You're looking at historical data. For us, it was stocks. Today, it's, you know, looking at people's credit cards and mm -hmm. social profiles and, um, you know, bank account statements. But it's looking at historical data, predicting future prices, 
and using technology to do a lot of little events efficiently. So I always feel like my experience in Wall Street was very much in that realm of what we think of fintech today. And so I always, as I spent more time there, wanted to do something more in the tech world and leverage what I had learned. And one of the things that I found that was really difficult, and maybe this resonates for for you or a lot of people, like all the skill sets that we learn in finance are not necessarily valued in the same way in the startup or tech world. You know, so you could go be like a VP of capital markets at Stripe or work in the treasury group at Microsoft. It's, it's almost like you have to like start over in tech. And that's really where I felt the world was going. And I wanted to get closer to that world after my um, experiences on the banking side. So I said, how do I take my skill set and, and, and bring it to that world? And I met a gentleman, Jason Finger, who started Seamless Web, which then merged with yep. Grubhub. And one of the things that he highlighted to me is that when he started Seamless in the late 90s, VC firms were very small and very aligned with management. Like they were writing smaller checks. They cared about dilution. And if you fast forward to 20 years later today, VC and growth equity has gotten gargantuan. They're writing bigger and bigger checks. And what's happening is founders are owning less and less of their business and they have less operational control. And he said, there's a missing piece in the startup financing world. Like equity is the tool. And, and VC as a model really hasn't innovated itself. And so like my background in looking at data and Jason's background working in, you know, venture capital in the startup world, we brought those two skill sets together because I think you need to look like your customer. You need to have connectivity with that world, which he has. And, you know, for us to think about providing credit, we need my background. So we started Upper 90 and the real mission was how do we find interesting businesses that have an asset where equity is being used, where debt is appropriate versus raise equity, get debt, which is kind of the you know venture debt mm-hmm. model that's been in place for a long time. So that that was really the impetus. And it was exciting for me to figure out I could kind of take my skill set, partner with somebody who had a different skill set and like one plus one is three. That's great. So what? give us an example of the a, a recent deal that you thought was interesting or innovative or something that, give that, that is illustrative of what you're doing. Sure. So, you know, the one thing that's interesting is everything we do now is captured in data. You know, the Instagram ads that you will see will be different than what I see. And the Netflix home screen, like everything in our lives will become personalized. The balance sheet of companies is really not changed as equity. So some specific examples, there's a company that has built now the largest driver's education school in the country called Coastline. We met them through one of our LPs when they were thinking about their Series A. So they had built a tech-enabled driver's ed school. So an app to connect students and drivers and rating drivers and giving you know um, upsells like defensive driving. So a really kind of tech-enabled approach to a very legacy mom-and-pop business. They were profitable. They were scaling. They were looking to raise venture capital and growth equity. And... When we met them, we said, you know, what are your uses of capital for this big equity round you're raising? And they said, well, half of the round's going to be leasing and buying Toyota Priuses for the driver's teachers. <laughs> and half of it's going to be, you know, marketing technology and personnel. And like, why would you use equity for something that is a very well understood asset? And so we gave them a credit facility to finance the Priuses and they were able to grow raising about half of the equity that they had planned to do. 
So less dilution for their for the founders, which you hit a point before. I work with all these companies and I sit on boards and company, as you said, founders used to own an overwhelming majority of their company. And now I'm talking with founders that are on series A and they're down to 10 or 15%. I'm like, just the math doesn't work. You're going to keep getting diluted. You're going to be down to nothing by the time you're done. Well, I, I also remember I, one of the whiteboards from when I bosses back in the day was like, go big or go home. And I think what's happened is for founders, if you don't own enough, then you're real, why not go big or go home? And mm -hmm. so like in Coastline, they still own the majority of their business. If they have a $100 million exit, you know, that would be the equivalent of a traditional Series D venture company having a billion dollar exit for the management team. They own about 5% at that point yep. versus, so I think it also opens up the realm, like our upper 90s capital helps have a lot of different outcomes because you're doesn't have to be binary. Like, so, and what what was the rate on that loan, and what was the kind of LTV against the fleet? Just so people know. Sure. So usually we're pricing risk, or our cost of capital is usually like low to mid teens current pay. You know, with rates rising, it's probably closer to fifteen percent. We, when we put our firm together, we're like life's too short. You know, most lenders are very temporary partners. They're in, they're out. And we want it to be aligned with our company. So we do about 90% debt and we'll do 10% equity. So we'll actually put money into the company, you know, to create a different level of alignment. So, you know, I think we're looking for companies where we feel like the asset can self-amortize. It can pay back the debt, you know, and for a, a Toyota Prius, which is a very well understood asset, you know, you might have an 85 to 90% advance rate on, you know, what you believe the, the values of that car. You know, another deal that we just did is a company called Crusoe Energy, which is capturing stranded gas from oil fields in the country where there's no pipeline. So they're drilling for oil in Colorado, North Dakota, Montana, et cetera. Then the, the oil gets shipped out, but the natural gas gets flared because there's nowhere to put it or, or export it. And so Crusoe built portable data centers that is, are going to these oil fields, capturing that energy that's being wasted and repurposing it. Um, and so in that situation, we're actually financing, they're now doing cloud computing and AI. The biggest input of that business now is energy. And so we're financing their acquisitions of the latest generation NVIDIA chips. Now, clearly that's an emerging industry the technology obsolescence is unknown. So we'd say, hey, the advance rate for a product like that with a lot more volatility is maybe 50% or 60%, not 80 or 90%. But I think a lot of people get fixated on, hey, why would somebody pay 15, 16% for, you know, financing used cars, you know, when Hearst is getting 5%. And it's like, the question is, well, they were about to use equity. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper you know, than equity. And yeah, and I think it's no, kind of no helping dilution. people understand the, the options and, you know, alternatives. So what are some of the lessons that you learned in Upper 90 that helped influence the idea for 3i that, you know, you launched with Mark and Teddy? Sure. So Upper 90 started as a club. So I was at dinner with Jason and he said, you know, as a tech founder, I invest in really interesting startup opportunities. Founders want me on the cap table. And so he said, I love the deals because I'm seeing them first and I understand them, but my net worth is zero to infinity. And so I'm a big believer that you should be investing in deals that you should be seeing. Like, why am I seeing a tech deal? 
you know, at the time. And I mostly invest in, you know, market making strategies and quant strategies. And those are much more liquid. And it's like, hey, I, you know, kind of have very active P&Ls and redemptions. And Jason's like, how do I access quant deals? <laughs> you know, I want more liquidity. I didn't know that that existed. Um, you know, if a quant deal comes to me, it's probably like, you know, an ETF or an AQR, which is like a behemoth, not, you know, GTS or some really interesting high sharp market making strategy. And I was like, if I saw a tech deal, like how many people passed to yeah, somehow it's gotten to <laughs> yeah. Bill Libby, you know, like, so Jason said, every tech founder that I know would want access to your deals. And I said, every quant founder that I know would want access to your deals. So we both invited the 10 most interesting people from those verticals. We all put in money and we all shared our deals. So this is how it started. We went months a month. We, and what happened is by bringing together, I'm a big believer, like opportunities are created when you bring together two areas that don't overlap. Like I'm sure in, in finance, you know, there's prime brokerage and there was program trading. The hedge funds started doing program trading like millennium and all the banks got into prime brokerage stock loan. And then Goldman's like, Hey, well, if we bring those two businesses together, we can do a swap business that others can't do. So um, we brought these two random groups together, which I think has a lot of the ingredients of three eyes, like bringing experts from different areas and new opportunities come about. And what happened is the real change is happening in the tech world. And all those opportunities came in from that world. And the quants kept asking like, hey, why is this company raising equity? They had all the data. So it's kind of that's how it started. And then as Upper 90 gravitated towards and we grew and we had to kind of specialize. It was on credit, you know, finding asset backed loans and receivables and royalties. And Mark and I were saying, hey, there's just so many other things that are still interesting opportunities that don't fit in the box. And it's a shame to let those go. And like, there's also a lot of experience and learnings that should be compounded it where if you're doing X, like you move to Florida, that, ex that process, you know, why should someone go through that again? So I think once upper 90 got bigger and specialized, Mark said, Hey, there's go, let's go back to like where it started. And there's just like a lot of elements there that are its own thing between his experience at GLG and in mine with upper 90. That's great. And so uh, in terms of 3i, what are you most excited about with respect to where it is today? Sure. A couple of years in. So I, I, you know, I think when it was launched, it was very much like in that club investment club mentality that we just mentioned. Um, and that was really, I'd say the primary, Hey, I want to find, you know, under the radar opportunities and I want to learn and piggyback on experts in areas. And what I think excites me the most is there's always another deal, you know, and I think in COVID and as people have exits, it's creating a community, creating a network of people that are like-minded, that want to build, that want to help one another. I think the community part of 3i that brings people together and helps solve problems for members that like extend across their life, to me, that is very sticky and that's very hard to create and is like a missing fabric. And that to me, I see being like the majority of the future value with an important but minority part being like finding deals. I agree. You know, I've been involved since the beginning and uh, I, I've, I've made a lot of new friends. Yes, I've invested in a half a dozen deals, but I would say the network and the friends I've developed, you know, Teddy was with me uh, over the, just 
a couple of weeks ago, he was in town. Uh, Shock Friedman comes over. You know, we, we I, I have all these people that I didn't know a couple of years ago that have become come good friends, and we do things outside of Three I as well. So I I'm a big believer in a network effect and growing the network, yeah. and I think it's done just that. So kind of on a related topic, we touched on how venture capital has changed over the last 20 years. And there's been kind of a reset. A lot of 2021 deals and firms are toasted, right? I mean, they got lost a lot of money in light of paying super high valuations. Where do you think it goes from here on the venture side? Sure. And I think you just made a great point. Like the best deals in my experience have come from trusted people. And when you're meeting new people or, or you're comfortable or I'm comfortable introducing someone to the network, mm -hmm. like you have to do that in a curated, trusted setting. You know, you don't want to bring your decade long relationships into an unknown yep. market. So I, I think all these things need to be highly curated um, and just bringing people together to solve problems. Um, on the venture capital, I think the biggest shift is. When we started Upper 90 in 2018, we, it was the same thesis, you know, how to think of providing more tools to founders to grow their company on the capital side. Um, you know, the, the services that were provided by VCs at the time, and I think Andreessen kind of led this, like, we'll help you with marketing, we'll help you with customer acquisition, we'll help you with, yeah. you know, people. Um, like, those have become available from the market. There's tools now, there's greenhouse, there's people are using those in-house. Like, so I, I, we felt like the next set of tools that are important to founders are going to be capital markets tools. How do they think about tax? You know, most founders don't think about like setting up their, for maximizing QSBS and how to yep. do trusts. And, you know, everyone kind of deals with all these things after, and it's like a huge problem. So like our view is a capital market services, which debt is a critical part of our the most critical and, you know, going to be in vogue. Now, when we started, equity was cheap. You know, valuations were crazy. So our biggest thing was like educating the market on credit, you know, and why, to, when and when to use alternatives. Now equity is expensive. So everyone's obviously it's in vogue. Um, I think the biggest change you're going to see is twofold. I think you're going to see founders that are comfortable building a kind of cash flow positive business that doesn't need to be a unicorn. Like they don't care if they have brand name VCs. They just, you know, they want capital, they want to get to profitability and they want to control the destiny of that journey. So I think you're going to see a lot more businesses that are like low to mid market, not this unicorn path. So I think it's going to open up a new, and those will fail too. Like I think a lot, someone joked like, you know, the top profession now leaving Stanford business school is like going and owning a plumbing business in Iowa. So <laughs> there's some middle ground, you know, but yeah. I think you're going to see people like not chasing kind of these illusory outcomes, getting to profitability. Um, and then I think you're just going to see some of the bigger funds getting bigger, like you're seeing in private credit and, and, in you know, the hedge fund world where they're just going to like lower fees. I think it's going to be really hard for, you know, the single manager or the group of people who thought it was easy and, you know, left a big place and, you know, got lucky quick. So I think there's going to be a kind of, it's going to be really hard to be a small player. And I think founders are going to be like open to running a profitable business versus like a unicorn outcome. You know, so a couple of things you said. So on that point, I agree it's getting crowded, but with the banks pulling back and lending, uh, and the regulatory environment, 
I think there's some cool things going on in private credit. And, and you said something else. You mentioned QSBS. So I didn't know what QSBS was seven or eight years ago. And actually, Mark Gerson, we were making a deal. We were making an investment. He goes, well, make sure it's QSBS. I was like, what, what, what is that? Right. And, you know, qualified small business stock, I think is what it stands for. Yeah, exactly. And for those listeners who don't know what it is, there's some rules that if you make a, an investment in a small company that has less than $50 million of assets and its valuation is, and there's less than a certain number of employees, you can invest and you don't pay tax on a big chunk of the capital gain uh, if it's qualified as a qual- if, it, if, if it qualifies as a QSBS and you hold it, I want to say five years or something. So right. there's these rules. So if you're making investments in small companies, you should look into the QSBS designation with your CPAs, with your tax advisors to see if you can do that, it might save you money. And I learned that trick from Mark. And I'll, and I'll just give you an example because Jason's very focused on, you know, just post-tax returns is a term we focus on. Yeah. You know, is, I think QSBS, we're not experts here, but it's like your first 5 million is tax-free if you hold it for five years and it's an early mm-hmm. stage business. And then you could set up five trusts where each one of those trusts have a QSBS exemption. So that's now $25 million of, so like for a founder, you know, most of them are on the cap table in their name. And these are ways that we want to help think of giving more insight early. And then even as, even as it, I think then it's like phases in over time. So until you sell for like 50, 60, 70 million, there's some material tax savings, uh, which is, yeah, which is interesting. So, exactly. okay. Uh, uh, so what comes next for upper 90? What are you excited about with the future of upper 90? I think you know, there's periods in your life where you think about strategy and growth and there's periods in your life where you put your head down and grind. And, you know, I, I still feel like the private markets take longer to work through than the public markets. And, you know, I, we spent a lot of last year proactively merging companies and, you know, we've never been like an AUM minded gatherer. And so we've refinanced, you know, I'm proud both of our first funds, like 2018 has over 100% DPI, like 2020s, almost 50%. So it's like kind of knowing like how to refinance, when to refinance. And and I, I just think so much of last year was kind of like portfolio management. And I still think there's more things coming to the private markets, but I feel like just feels entering 2024, people are going to have to do things. There's going to be financing rounds, like maybe some of the, capital markets open up a bit. Like I, I just more optimistic that it's now refocusing on like investments. And one of our portfolio company founders, Jason Gus from Octane Lending said, you know, Hey, if you have a, if you're a startup with a com- a complicated capital situation, usually mid to later stage companies like check with upper 90. So I think we're, we're seeing a lot of companies that have like an interesting problem to solve, um, that are later stage businesses. And before the markets were so flush that if you didn't get in early, like the companies just never needed you. And so now I I kind of am excited to solve some of these later stage problems. You know, maybe the company is merging or doing an acquisition or buying back their business or, you know, hey, a bank was going to close and it's taking longer. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of these more special sitch and bridge capital situations. Um, this year. And that's where we're focused a lot more. And how much of your, uh, what you're doing is actually within the fund versus co-invest? So everything that we do starts with the fund. You know, we're trying to do 
you know, asset-backed senior secured facilities that are somewhere between five to $25 million in size, which is a, it's a nice spot for us because it's kind of too big for the family offices on average and the friends and family. But it's, you know, once you're doing $50 million deals, everyone's looking at them. So we, that's where we typically start. And if a company wants to keep growing with us and has found product market fit and has good margins and spreads, like then, you know, we want to be diversified in our fund. We will set up co-investments to add to our positions in our fund. And when we were smaller, it was almost like maybe three to one co-investment to fund investment. It's probably more like one to one now. Great. Okay. So talk about one of the unexpected stories you had with uh, 3i that you think is memorable for, for the viewers. There's a couple things. I haven't thought about this question that much, but some of the things that, that come to mind, one is a lot of the people that I've developed relationships for a long time have, I didn't expect them to join 3i and meet so many other people. Like I've just yep. been like, you know, Jacques and some of these other people that I've known for a while. Um, I've just, I'm, I've just been surprised at like how quickly relationships have been built and like the range of topics that people are working together on, you know, from, I left my company and I need an insurance solution. It's like 30 members are like, I, I would love to find an insurance, personal insurance solution. Or, you know, everyone's figuring out how to like buy treasuries and how to diversify to get the best yield. And you're like, here's like what I do for myself. And just the, you know, like compounding in life is amazing. And I've just been amazed at like when one person does something, how relevant it's been to many other people. And then I've never really gone to um, the Warren Buffett conference, Berkshire Hathaway conference. And one of our members has a really choice set up there. And so this year I'm going to be going with 15 other three I members, you know, in a really high class way to see this great conference and something that I probably never be able to set up on my own. And then going with 15 people that I want to spend time with. So that's something that, you know, time is like the most valuable thing. And that to me is like a win. It's like you're doing something and you're meeting new people and you all have some natural commonality through 3i. I agree 100%. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of my time with 3i, uh, you know, getting people involved and, you know, speaking with people and educating great, people and, about and my move. So it's, it's been amazing. fun. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Well, you know, Billy, I, as I said, I enjoy doing these podcasts with everybody, but when you get to do it with a friend, it's, it's really nice. And you and I actually met through the three I process to become exactly. friendly. And I'm actually going to see you in Miami. You're coming to the, to the bright side of the world in Miami yeah, exactly. in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to, we'll we're going to have the, dinner in the my 29th and the 30th. And it's been fun to watch the Rosa report grow and how all there's just all these little connectivity points, but you need to have some, someone says something very interesting to me, like community as religions become less and less core to people. Like a lot of people find community through fitness, actually. That's right. And I think it, it, to find business community, it's hard, you know. And so I think it's 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 nice to talk about things and work together on things, but it's easier said than done. So I and especially in a distributed world. Well, yeah, I, I always end my my things. I put on a, a Rosen Report hat, and I, I you know, so I, uh, I I put this on in the end. But it's been a really pleasure. It's been my pleasure to be with you no, for the last here. thirty minutes or so, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. So thanks for joining. Thank the you. Three I Rosen Report uh, Founder Series, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much.